The Holy Gospel according to Luke, the second chapter. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, Mary and Joseph brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, and when the parents brought brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. And then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother, Mary, this child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple but worshipped there with fasting and prayer night and day. And at that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had finished everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their town of Nazareth. The child grew up and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. I invite you all to be seated. So... As I said earlier, the reason that I thought this text for presentation of our Lord and celebrated would be, would be a good one for us is in part because at this service we do end with the Nuptimittis, which is just Latin for now, Lord. And now, Lord, you let your servant go, go in peace, your word has been fulfilled. And, uh, you know, I also have connected it to the idea of transition, that we are a congregation in transition. transition. And being in transition means that we are waiting. And the good news about waiting in this context is waiting does have a finite end. It's not going to be 40 years. I I can almost guarantee that. And the the, the thing, though, about this that also makes it such a powerful story to me is is the idea of this hopeful And, you know, I I think part of what this story serves up in me as I think about this, that I hold in tension, is one that there are some things in our lives that we are going to get to experience where that hope is fulfilled. And you might remember from such places as my Christmas sermon, where I promised you would be hearing either the best or worst Tuesday sermon of the year. You know, I was talking about, in part, those times in our lives where we wait and wait and wait, and I think the times where the fulfillment of that waiting is something that is exciting and fulfilling, and it lives up to all of our expectations and that there are moments when the waiting and waiting comes to an end and we get that thing that we want and our expectation feels like it's falling flat because sometimes life just can't live up to the hype. 
The thing we see in Simeon and Anna today is something that I think is very important with regards to waiting on what God promises. We do not see in Scripture in any place where God's promises are fulfilled the dissatisfaction with what the end result is. Simeon rejoices. Anna rejoices. You know, when the disciples after Jesus is resurrected have gotten their, their courage back up and they unlock themselves from the room in which they were locked for fear of the people who crucified Jesus, we see that by the, by the time we get to the disciples of Acts, they are a, a force of faithful people who have learned to proclaim the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in a way that not only brings life and hope and faith to them, but sparks a new way of living and hoping and faithing, if that's a word, in, in the people around them. So we, we see in this idea of hopes fulfilled something that I think is very important, that the reality of God's revelation never falls flat or disappoints, even though I think we also see throughout scriptures that it usually doesn't quite happen in the way people expect, right? So, and then there's that other side, that, that, that point of promise where we realize that this isn't a promise to be fulfilled in us, but this is a promise for generations to come. And our task isn't to, isn't to plant seeds and enjoy the apples. You know, our task is to plant seeds and know that the next generation will enjoy them, right? Our task is to continue that long tradition that the communion of saints, the faithful of the church, the community of the baptized have been fulfilling since the time of Jesus. And even before that, as God's faithful people in the Old Testament continued to follow God, even though the promises were far off, we live in that tradition of those who sow and who may not reap. And so we live in that moment of tension where we do see with Simeon and rejoice with Simeon and Anna. And, and proclaim with Simeon and Anna that the Messiah has come, that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see a difference in the way God relates to the world. Because we see through the life and flesh of Jesus, God declaring that this is a space that through my presence is becoming holy. Because God declares wherever God is is someplace that's already being made holy. And we know that the chances are We'll never see that promise come in its fullness until the day we live in glory with God in the resurrection, whatever that looks like, right? So we live in the tension of a, of a present hope, fulfilled and waiting. And that's a challenging place to be. Two weeks ago was Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And uh, one of the things that I often do is that holiday comes up, and at least once a year, sometimes twice a year, I, I go on a on kind of a, you know, splurge of listening to everything that I can find in this that's recorded, just because I find it helps me. It helps me to, to recalibrate it. If you've never heard of his interpretation of the Good Samaritan, just don't stop what you're doing right now, but change your plans this afternoon to find it. And uh, as I was preparing for, you know, for Martin Luther King Day this, this year, now all of a sudden realizing I wasn't preaching that Sunday that the bishop was, you know, it's always nice to know that someone else will be preaching, but I I always miss talking about him because he's someone who, in, in our modern world, is a giant of the faith. Not necessarily because he is the most holy person who's ever lived, because he's a human being, and he's simply not. But because he is someone whose sense of vocation as a person and a pastor meant that he was willing to follow to where God 
people like Martin Luther King Jr. and Dietrich Bonhoeffer, people who are willing to stand up against what society tells them is right, and also stand up for the thing that the gospel tells them is right, whether or not it's safe, whether or not it's recommended, whether or not the other good church people agree with them. And, and we see these examples, and they shine for us so that we're able to see, too, that we are called to be people who are different. But I think specifically in Martin Luther King Jr., because he is someone who, as he got older, and he didn't get to be very old, you know, as, as he continued his journey in ministry as a pastor, as he continued to see this civil rights movement that eventually would come to pass, and, you know, I don't know about y'all, but I've noticed that we do not live in a world where racism and sexism and all the other isms have, this, have gone away, and now we're all perfect and we love each other equally, right? We still struggle with that. Martin Luther King Jr. recognized what all of us recognize is this also is work which will never come to completion. This also is work that we participate in generation after generation. And all we can do is our part and pass it along to our children, the way our parents pass it along to us. And as he approached the end of his life, you know, I think Martin Luther King Jr. probably had people who gave him a choice, like his namesake was given a choice, Martin Luther. Martin Luther was someone, of course, who was railing against the practice, all kinds of different things in the Catholic Church at the time. And it didn't hope that the health of the Pope at the time was particularly challenging, probably. And Martin Luther was also someone who was particularly challenging. And you know what happens when two big personalities share the same space. It seldom works out well. And it just so happens, as we know, that at the time when Martin Luther was working on theological issues, the, the German nobles were working on the fact they didn't want to pay taxes to the church. And Martin Luther was someone who offered him a way out of that. And so when it became apparent that the, that the power of the church wanted to deal with him the way they had dealt with many other would-be reformers, like Jan Hus, who, who found himself burned at the stake just a generation before because he dared to challenge the church, those German nobles hid Luther away. And he spent a significant amount of time over the next little while writing in secret under pen names so that he would be able to survive. To, to go on and do the rest of the Reformation things that he was able to do. And Martin Luther King Jr., about 500 years later, 450 years later, saw that he was being faced with a similar situation as the death threats increased, as the danger grew, and it became more and more obvious that if he continued on the trajectory he was going, that his life was not going to be very long. And he began to recognize in his ministry, something that was familiar to him in scripture, which was Moses. And Moses is an important person, not only in our faith, but, but in particular in, in the faith of the, the black church in America. Because Moses is, not just because Moses is someone who led the Israelites out of slavery, but because Moses represents the process of what it takes not just to remove people from the physical bonds of slavery, but what it takes to remove a culture from being beholden to the effects of what that does to the entire society. You know, when you, when you begin to think about what happened to the Israelites, and, and remember who Moses was. Moses was someone who was adopted into the royal family. Moses was someone who was on the run because he had killed a guard. And then God says, you're going to go back and not just face Pharaoh, because it's scary enough just to face Pharaoh, but you're going to face like your stepfather. 
your, or your step-grandfather, because I think it was Pharaoh's daughter who won, wasn't it, right? And so you're going to face your family member, and then not only are you going to face the law, but you're going to face the disappointment of someone who saw you raised in their household. And then you chose your birth family over your adopted family. And all of a sudden, you're going to be facing not only that, but knowing the fact that this Pharaoh is particularly stubborn. This Pharaoh is particularly hard-hearted in God, and the gospel, or the Old Testament says it really interestingly. God had hardened Pharaoh's heart. And Moses went, knowing what could happen, knowing what personal dangers he might be facing. And not only went and said, let my people go, but kept going back, bringing plagues. Kept going back, bringing strife. Kept going back, knowing that he was not going to be a welcome face in Pharaoh's court, until eventually, after the final leg that killed the firstborn children of Egypt, the heart of Pharaoh uh, cracked, and he let the people go. And, and so we, we see in that kind of a, a metaphor how difficult it is to change a culture that's so deeply ingrained. But also, what King saw was the leader that Moses was, who led his people through the Red Sea, who led his people through the desert. Whose people began to complain as soon as they left Egypt. Well, at least back in Egypt, we had the flesh pots, right? At least back when we were slaves, we knew where we were going to sleep at night. At least back in Egypt, we had pheasants to eat. You know, and, and Moses at one point was just so, so worn out by all of it. He said to God, God, if this is what it means to be a pastor, then just fill me now, because I can't take any help. I, I think a lot of pastors over the years have said something close to that. And and King sees this, but then sees something else that becomes very important for his ministry. He sees the humanity of Moses, who at some point, you know, calls for water to be drawn out of the rock and claims responsibility for having done it rather than giving glory for the deed to God. And it's at that point Moses learns that he will not see the promised land to which he has been leading God's people. And remember, you know, what 40 years represents, you know, 40 is a number in the Bible that represents completeness and wholeness, the beginning and end of the cycle. But 40 years in particular also witnesses the birth and death of a generation. The death of a generation whose identity was rooted in their slavery. And the birth of a generation whose identity was yet to be formed in the notion of freedom. And learning what freedom means. That's powerful. And so part of what Cain saw, and, and when we hear people talk about his speeches, you know, a lot of times what we hear them talk about is, you know, the I have a dream. The I have, I have a dream speech is both more powerful and much different than what a lot of people remember about it. Because remember, Martin Luther King Jr. as a human being living in time is not someone who was particularly popular. He's only become popular because after his death, we've been able to sanitize him. He was someone who called to account people who stood in power for the deeds that they were doing. The I Have a Dream speech was a particularly insidious speech when you look at it from that standpoint. But the, I think the most powerful sermon he might have ever delivered was his mountaintop speech, where, where he realizes he doesn't have long left. And I think actually he was giving a version of this speech today he was assassinated, where he says to the people who are gathered, I, I have, I'm not worried now because I've been to the mountaintop. And I may not get there with you. But in my interpretation, is that God is the one to take you there. Now, we, we as the people of God live in this moment, not just because it happens to be February 2nd, 2020, and we have our own set of stuff going on, 
But because that's what life is. Life is living in this moment where we have, on the one hand, an opportunity to hide ourselves away and, and live in ways that we know are going to allow us to kind of keep going the way we've always done. And let's face it, even when we're having a hard time, it's a hard time we're familiar with. And it's awful hard for us to put, those, put down those things that are familiar to pick up something that's scary, right? Or we have a choice to live into the vocation, that gospel calling that God is putting in our lives that calls us into dangerous spaces, to face the things we're afraid of, to go into the places that might feel threatening, whether it's a physical threat or an emotional threat or a spiritual threat or a relational threat, or, you know, facing those things within us that we've always been embarrassed about or we've always been ashamed of, and we know that if we face it, it's going to tear us down, but we can never be built back up again unless we face it within ourselves. And, and so I've been using this life of Martin Luther King Jr. as an example of what it looks like to live in our faith, knowing that part of what we hear in today's scriptures, in the second lesson, or in the first lesson, we hear you know, the prophet talk about the presence and fire of God as a refiner's fire. A fuller And now I, I think we all have an image of what a refiner's fire does. That's where you know the fire melts out all the impurities so that all you have left is the pure metal. I actually had to Google fuller soap this morning during the first service because I'd forgotten what it is. And so for those of you who didn't grow up on a farm like I did, fuller soap is the soap that you use once a sheep is sheared to clean the wool so that you can spill, so that you can spin it in the thread, right? And so the fuller soap is a really harsh, heavy, greasy soap. That, and if you think about what your hair is like after about three or four days of not taking a shower, some of you may have to remember what that was like, but I have a feeling you might be able to, to remember what it was like to have it in the chair. You know, how it gets greasy and stringy and all the rest of it, right? Now, imagine being a sheep who lives outside, who never takes a shower, who's always in the elements, and who never gets, gets that cleanliness that comes from, from soap, and then imagine having to be the person that processes this nasty, dirty, smelly wool that then you're going to wet down so you can smell it even more abundantly, right? So that's what fuller soap does. Isn't that a, that's a really fertile image, isn't it? But, you know, so that's what the, the Word of God is in our lives. It's inviting us to take those deepest, darkest, nastiest places within us and know that God sees those already. And that wherever those places are within us, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God resides there already. And wherever God is, everything is already being made new. This week as you go out, how will you confront those spaces where God already is that we like to ignore so that we might experience that newness? How will you encounter those places in your life where you're being called to those moments of decision that won't always be like the death? It might be character from the bigger changes. They might be, they might lead you to greater satisfaction or greater regret. How how do we answer in a way that demonstrates the courage of the saints of our faith? And in those places where we're called to rejoice at seeing the promise of God, we have an opportunity to rejoice. But also, I, I encourage you to think in your prayer life: How is it that the faith that has been passed down to me? is a faith that I will continue to pass down to the people in my life. Knowing that I may never reap what I sow. And know that wherever we go, it's a place that God has already 
Thank you.